Right, so the question is, what happened to Jesus' pre-existent body when he came to be um, a little baby? Um, that, that's a jolly good, I'd never, that, that is a brilliant, that's a very good question. No, if you, if you go to Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, because of course, yeah, not everyone realises this, that we know that God exists in a trinity, alright, that there are three persons in the Godhead. And we know these persons through the scriptures as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, the second person of the Trinity, and this is tremendously important, has always had a body. And uh, I'll come on to sort of what happened to it in a few moments, but let's just first outline this, because not all Christians are aware of it. Now, let's just have a think. There are certain things that we know about certain persons of the Trinity in the Bible. For instance, we know that the Father, the first person of the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit, the second person of the Trinity, we know that they do not have bodies. The Holy Spirit is a spirit, alright, and a spirit doesn't have a body. That's part of how it's defined. And also, in the Bible, when the Jews kept saying things like, no one, ever, you know, no one has ever seen God, and in the New Testament, you certainly get phrases like that, that no one has ever seen God, alright? You can't see God because he doesn't have a body. So the Father doesn't have a body. The Holy Spirit doesn't have a body. And yet, as soon as you open up your Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, immediately you're confronted with the fact that the Lord God had a body. Just go to Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. <clears throat> and, um... No, not Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3. And you'll see the bit that we want. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, this is um, after Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit, alright, this is after they've fallen, and it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, if you turn to many, many Bible commentaries, they will tell you that this is what is called anthropomorphism. Now, I'll explain what that means. Anthropos means man. And they're saying that this is kind of a poetic, you know, way that you're taking something that isn't human and you're giving it the attributes of a human being. In the same way that the, the tales of Beatrice Potter are anthropomorphic. They're putting the attributes of human beings onto bunny rabbits and stuff like that. But of course here we're not dealing with that at all. The Lord God is walking in the garden. And as you trace through the scriptures, you'll remember that, for instance, Joshua, before he took Jericho, as he was about to lead his army against Jericho, the first skirmish as they were going into the Promised Land, he had this experience of meeting the man with the drawn sword. If you just go to that, go to Joshua chapter 6. Sorry, Joshua chapter 5. <clears throat> and from verse 13. And it says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood before him with his drawn sword in his hand. 
And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So as far as Joshua's concerned, he's seeing a man, a soldier, and this soldier has got his sword drawn, ready for battle. And he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said, What does my Lord bid his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Put off your shoes from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now what we need to understand here is that Joshua, he's asking who this guy is, and this man with the drawn sword demands worship. The idea of putting the shoes from off your feet. Do you remember when Moses, when the Lord spoke to him through the burning bush, he said, take the shoes from off your feet, for the place you're standing is holy. This was one of the ways that God demanded worship. And here, this man with the drawn sword demanded worship. All right. Now, obviously, it wasn't a man, because, I mean, Joshua wouldn't have been so stupid as to mistake a man for God. So this being was obviously supernatural. But we can know that it wasn't an angel either. And the reason we can know that is that an angel would never, ever ask you to worship him. All right. So that only leaves two possibilities. It might have been a demon. Well, hardly a demon. Joshua would have known that. It's Jesus in his pre-existence. And it's a man standing before him. So here, Joshua is actually looking at the second person of the Trinity, God, God, and he's seeing him in bodily form. And you'll remember as well with Jacob, when he ended up by Brook Cherith, he ended up wrestling with that man. And if you read through the story, you'll see quite clearly that, that Jacob realised that he'd seen God face to face. He says, I've seen the Lord face to face, and yet I live. It's not just as a Melchizedek isn't. We have done a tape on that. Um, there's nothing to indicate in any way at all that Melchizedek was Jesus in any way at all. He's certainly a type of Jesus in the Bible, but he's not worshipped in any way. And when Abraham meets up with Melchizedek, uh, he gives him some of his spoil because Melchizedek comes and prophesies over Abraham. And because Abraham gave him a tithe, of all his goods. That was Abraham's way of acknowledging that Melchizedek was a genuine priest of God. And of course the importance about Melchizedek is that the New Testament uses it to prove to Israel that there was a priesthood other than the Old Testament priesthood. Uh, part of the hang-up the Jews had about Jesus is how could he be Messiah because he's not a priest? Because under the law, a priest had to be from the tribe of Levi, and Jesus wasn't. And so in Hebrews, what the writer does is he demonstrates that the priesthood of Jesus didn't need to be the same as Levi, and he proves that in the Old Testament there was a genuine priesthood outside of Levi by quoting Melchizedek. So Abraham recognised Melchizedek as a genuine priest of God, but Melchizedek is used as a type of the Son of God. There's no indication that that actually was him. Some people believe he was, but I refer you to a tape we did on that. I think it's called uh, sort of Christian Priesthood, and we did cover that um, in some detail. But the point is that what we've established is that throughout the Old Testament, before Jesus was born as a baby, that he had a physical body. So that when Jesus revealed himself in his pre-existent form, i.e. before he became a little baby in Bethlehem, that he appeared bodily 
Therefore, if he appeared bodily, it's because he had a body. Now, I'm not saying he had a human body, not in the slightest, but I'm saying that the second person of the Trinity always had a body and that it was human in appearance. Now, think about it. In Genesis, God said, let us make man in our image. The let us, and the, it's plural, because God is triune. There are three persons in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But when it talks about, when the, God said, let us make man in our own image, normally you hear people say, this is spiritual language, and that to be in the image of God means that we're like him in the sense that we're moral creatures and things like that, and that we're spiritual creatures. And they say that's all. It's kind of, you know, sort of a symbolic language in the image of God. Now, it's perfectly true. Spiritually and morally, as human beings, we share the image of God. It doesn't mean we're like God. It doesn't mean we're perfect, because we're not, we're sinners. But the point is that the fact that men and women are created in the image of God means, for instance, God has free will. So do we. Uh, God is holy, so there is right and wrong. We are moral creatures. Can you see, this is what sets us apart from the animal kingdom. We are made in the image of God. So it is moral, and it is spiritual, but it is also quite literal. Let me ask you, where did the design for the human body come from? Why have we got two arms and two legs? Why have we got two ears and one nose? Why haven't we got four legs? Why haven't we got six arms? Why haven't we got three ears and five noses? Well, I'll tell you, because the human body is based on the body that the second person of the Trinity has always had. Physicality is part of the Godhead. And the second person of the Trinity, in the Bible, right from the very beginning of creation, every now and then, he appears on the earth in this body, this physical body that he had. And it's his body that he's had throughout eternity that the human body is based on. So I'm not saying that Jesus had a human body before he came to earth in human form. I'm not saying that at all. But the body that he had always had was, if you like, the blueprint for the human body. So there we've established that the second person of the Trinity has a physical body. Not physical in exactly the same way that we experience physicality today, but remember that, that there is physicality in God. I mean, when God created a material universe, he wasn't doing something that had never been done before. He was simply extending his own physicality outside of himself and creating a material universe. All right. So there we've established that the, son, the second person of the Trinity, who came to be called Jesus, all right, has always existed, obviously, because he's God himself, God is eternal, always has been, always will be. But up until the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity did have a physical body, and it was his physical appearance upon which the design of human beings was based, alright. Now the question is, right, so when the second person of the Trinity became a human being, what happened to that body? Well, if you go to Philippians, there's the background that we need. If you go to Philippians, 
And uh, in chapter 2, we'll start reading um, from verse 3. What Paul's doing here is that he's telling the Philippians the kind of people they ought to be because of the kind of person Jesus is. All right. And he says, verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which you have in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, what we've got here is that, I mean, Paul is saying, this is how you should be because this is how Jesus is. And he, what he's doing is he's showing that a natural part of God, one of the Lord's great characteristics is humility, absolute humility. And that what he does is he demonstrates the ultimate example of the humility of God. And Paul is saying, look, put other people before yourself. And what's so incredible about God is that he puts us before himself. I mean, that's what love is. He puts us before himself. You are more important to the Lord than the Lord is to himself. And that's what selflessness is. But he says, he did not count equality. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You see, the thing was that in his pre-existence, the second person of the Trinity was absolutely and 100% God in every possible way. Absolute God. Ultimate power, ultimate privilege, ultimate everything. He was in the form of God. And he had every right to be so, because he was God. But what Paul is getting across is that he didn't cons the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, didn't consider that this was something that he had to hang on to at all costs. Because he knew the plight we were in, and he was willing to give up his position in heaven in order that we might be saved. And he says, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now what you've got here is this. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem as a little baby, what you have got is that the second person of the Trinity changed the form in which he existed. He changed the form in which he existed. And that what the second person of the Trinity did is that he went from being God himself in God form. Do you see what I mean? He went from being God in God form, natural God if you like, and remember he was the, the person of the Trinity who had the physical body. 
He went from being in the form of God because he was God himself. And he changed his form and he became a human being. Now can you see what happened here? The second person of the Trinity, he changed his mode of existence. That is literally what the Greek, in this, the idea that the Greek in this passage literally brings across is that the second person of the Trinity changed his mode of existence. And what he changed it from was inherent godhood with all the power, all the privilege, all the knowledge, because remember, God is omni-everything. He's omnipresent, he's everywhere at the same time. He's omniscient, knowledge, science, he knows everything, all right? All these omnis, omnipotent, omnipotent, he can do anything he like, that Jesus laid all that aside because he changed from being in the form of inherent God, if you like, to becoming an ordinary human being. And of course, when God became a man, he did become an ordinary man. So therefore, in changing his mode of existence, Jesus had to leave behind him many attributes which were his by right, but he couldn't have held on to, because if he had have done, he couldn't have been an ordinary man. Can you see? Ordinary men are not omniscient, therefore Jesus had to leave that behind. An ordinary human being is not omnipotent, therefore Jesus had to leave that behind. So what you've got is that, that, that before the Incarnation, Jesus was, was God in God form, therefore having at his disposal all the power and knowledge that God inherently had. But after the Incarnation, because he became a human being, he obviously had to leave all that aside for the simple reason that you can't have that if you're going to be an ordinary human being. So therefore, the second person of the Trinity became an ordinary human being. He didn't stop being God, because if you're God, you can never stop being God. But the second person of the Trinity changed his mode of existence. He left his inherent Godhood behind, if you like, and he changed the form in which he existed. And he became an ordinary human being. Now what that means is, the body which he had before the incarnation all we know is that it was him in that body that was involved in this transformation so to ask where the body went is a silly question his body itself was involved in this transformation so it's not a question of where did his pre-existent body go his pre-existent body became a human body can you see so that then, once Jesus became a man, he changed his form, alright, he became an ordinary human being, so whereas before the incarnation, he had this God body, I can't think of other phrases, he had the physical body he had in the form of God, he changed that for the ordinary physical body of a human being. If he hadn't had done, then he couldn't have become an ordinary human being. And one of the early heresies that affected the church was the idea that, that Jesus didn't really become a human being, he just looked like one. 
So it was God looking as if he was a human being, but wasn't really. And of course the Bible teaches quite clearly that Jesus was an ordinary human being in every sense of the word, with the one exception that he had existed before, because he was God. So he didn't stop being God, of course not, but nevertheless he became an ordinary human being. Now there's something very important to understand here, and this will help you see what I'm saying. Jesus had no advantage over you and I. Now that might come as a shock to you, but it's very important to understand this. In Hebrews it says that he has been touched with the feeling of our infirmities. When Satan tempted Jesus to sin, that temptation was as real to Jesus as it is to us. The only difference is that Jesus, because he didn't have a human father, and remember the sinful nature is passed down through the male father, alright? Now because Jesus didn't have a human father, God the Father was his father, Jesus wasn't born with a sinful nature. But the question must arise, was it possible for Jesus to have fallen into sin? And of course the answer is, yes, of course it was possible for Jesus to fall into sin, but he never did. Now, if it was impossible for Jesus to sin, then he would have an advantage over us. I mean, how can the Bible seriously tell us that Jesus was tempted in every point as we are, yet without sin, if it was impossible for him to sin? I mean, that would just be playing with language, wouldn't it? That's crazy. Jesus could have sinned as easily as anybody else, but the beauty is he never did. Now, the point is, Jesus didn't have a sinful nature, but he was a human being in the same way that Adam and Eve were before they fell. Adam was created sinless, all right, but only because he hadn't had a chance to sin. So Adam and Eve, they had sinless human natures until temptation came along and then they immediately fell into sin. Now the, the status or the condition that Jesus was in humanly is that he was quite simply a human being in the same way that Adam and Eve were before they fell. So Jesus could have sinned. There's no question about that. But he never did. He must have um, to learn who he was then. He didn't know. Oh no, that's right. Jesus would not have known from the year dot who he was. Because of course, in laying aside his attributes as being God himself, part of that that went was his omniscient. Do you remember that when talking about the second coming, he says no one knows the day or the hour, not even the sun. Do you remember? Now, the reason that Jesus didn't know was because his father hadn't chosen to tell him. Now, Jesus could have known if he'd wanted to, because he was God. But when he became a human being, he became a proper one. Therefore, Jesus would not use those attributes of his that were Godhood. Can you see? He would not draw upon his Godhood in any way at all. Jesus lived in the same limitations as any human being. Now, the reason that constantly... Jesus was saying, I only do what I see my Father doing, was quite simply this. We know that as Christians, the Christian life is for us to be in absolute cooperation with Jesus so that he can live through us. As we do what Jesus is doing, as we flow with Jesus, because Jesus does it through us, sin is overcome. Can you see? It's our absolute submission to Jesus 
and therefore sin is overcome. Now, in exactly the same way, Jesus lived in constant submission to his heavenly Father. And because of that, although the temptation for sin was as powerful in him as it, was, as it is in us, he never fell because he was in utter dependence upon his Father all the time. Jesus had no advantage over us whatsoever. In regards to healing, a lot of people think, in a funny kind of a way, that when Jesus healed the sick, that he was healing them of himself. He wasn't. He could have done because he was God, but he chose not to. When Jesus healed the sick, he was ministering the gift of healing. Can you see what I mean? It was the gifts of the Holy Spirit coming through Jesus that enabled him to work all the signs and wonders that he did. Now, because he was God himself, he could have worked signs and wonders in his own power. His power is God. But remember, he put that aside because he lived as a human being. Human beings do not have the power to heal. Therefore, when Jesus healed the sick, he was ministering the gift of healing. And because he was in submission to his Father, the Holy Spirit could minister the gift of healing directly through him. When it talks in the Bible about the fact that Jesus would know what somebody was thinking, now, there were two things it wasn't. It wasn't the fact that Jesus was omniscient, because he, he laid that aside. Do you see what I'm saying? When Jesus became a man, he, let, he left behind all the attributes of God that he could have had. They were his by right. But he was willing to sacrifice them in order to save us. So therefore, when Jesus knew what people were thinking, it wasn't because he knew everything, because he didn't. He could have done if he wanted to, but he laid that aside to become an ordinary human being. No, it wasn't because he was omniscient, because in his human state, he wasn't. He could have been, but if he'd drawn on that, he would have immediately stopped being an ordinary human being. And in order to bring salvation, he had to become an ordinary human being. It had to be someone who was an ordinary man, and yet God, who died on the cross. We saw this when we were doing the Salvation series. So it wasn't the fact that he was omniscient when he knew what someone was thinking. Neither was it because he was reading their minds. That's occult. It wasn't that either. It was because he was moving in the word of knowledge. Can you see? And wherever you see Jesus working signs and wonders, be it words of knowledge, healings, casting out demons, he was using the gifts of the Spirit in exactly the same way that you and I can. Can you see? He had no advantage over us. And when we look at the life Jesus lived, that is the life we can live. Can you see what I mean? Jesus was totally dependent on his Father. If we could be and live in as great a dependence upon the Father as Jesus did, we would live exactly like Jesus. Now the difference is that we don't. Can you see? We don't, because we are inherently sinful. And unlike Jesus, we are so selfish. But can you see, at any point, when Jesus overcame temptation, when Jesus worked signs and wonders, he was simply moving in the power of the Spirit in the same way that you and I are told that we can do in our faithfulness to God as well. So Jesus had no advantage over us whatsoever. He really did become an ordinary human being. That's what the Bible said 
and it was absolutely real. Now the thing is, we've seen that he changed his form from what you might call inherent godhood to becoming an ordinary man. All right. Still God, obviously Jesus is God, always has been, always will be, because if you're God, that is an eternal thing. All right. You can't have someone who becomes God, all right, who wasn't God, and you can't have someone who was God and who stops being God. The definition of God is that you are God full stop, and of course Jesus is God. But he changed his mode of existence from inherent or essential godhood to becoming an ordinary human being. Now, when he died on the cross and was raised again from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, the important thing to realize is this. Jesus was glorified and ascended to heaven as a man. When Jesus accomplished salvation and then returned to heaven, having accomplished his work, he did not take on the form of godhood that he had before he became a man. Before the incarnation, Jesus wasn't a man, he was God. He was not a man, he was God. But he was that person of the Trinity that has a body, alright, a physical body, and it was upon his body that men and women's bodies were based. But in the incarnation, he became a man. But when he finished the work of salvation, and ascended into heaven, he did not revert back to his prior mode of existence. He remained a man. So that what we have is this. The reason that salvation can work at all is because there is a man in heaven. And because there's one man in heaven, there can be millions. Because there is a human being in heaven, that means that any human being who goes in the same way as Jesus can get there. So the point is that now, in heaven, what we have is a glorified man. And in the Salvation series, we saw that at the rapture, when we receive our glorified bodies, the glorified bodies we will we are going to receive are exactly the same as the glorified body that Jesus received when he was raised from the dead. All right. So therefore, what we have is the fact that God, the second person of the Trinity, God became man. All right. Jesus changed his mode of existence from essential godhood, all right, and he became an ordinary man. He has now ascended, having finished salvation. He has now taken on once more all his attributes of inherent godhood, but he has done so in a human glorified body. So the incredible thing is this. Jesus is still and always will be a human being. He was God. He wasn't a human being. He became a human being, but now he will always be a human being throughout eternity. Of course, we must be careful here, there are dangers. We must always remember that although Jesus became a human being just like us, and although he re will remain a human being throughout eternity, as we will remain human beings throughout eternity, the big difference between Jesus and us is that Jesus is the only human being who decided to become one. 
Can you see, we must always hold the uniqueness of Jesus. There are various heresies going around, and we have to be very, very careful here. Jesus is unique because he is eternally God. He changed his mode of existence to become a human being, but he will remain a human being throughout eternity in a glorified body, and that is why it is that you and I can be saved, because God became a human being in order to save human beings. But he's got all his um, attributes back now, though, Yes, he? that's he's right. <coughs> that's right. So he's a God human being. Yeah. That's right. It's very one struggling with terminology here because we're hitting almost an ultimate mystery, but it's one that the Bible does speak of quite clearly. Yes, now Jesus no longer has the limitations of being a human being upon him. But the glory the glorious thing is this that when we are in glorified bodies, neither will we. We will share Jesus's godhood in the same way that he shared our manhood. Now again, we must be careful, we will not be God. Only the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are God. Alright, we are not going to become God. That is a heresy. Neither are we going to end up so glorious that we become little gods or anything like that. But the point is, we will have shared everything that Jesus had. Can you see? We will come into a complete sharing Everything that God has and is, is going to be shared with us, except the fact that God is eternal. We can't share in God's eternity, because there was a time when we didn't exist. But we will, we will share everything that Jesus has. They won't become ours, they'll be flowing from Jesus. But can you see, when you receive a glorified body, you are receiving the very nature of Jesus himself, and a glorified body which is as powerful and as wonderful as Jesus's. Everything we will be sharing has come from God himself. It's not that we will develop powers and become God or anything like that, but everything God has and is will be totally shared with us. That's the... Yes, what does John? it mean about the, chi the child of the Holy Spirit? Sorry? What does it mean in the Bible when it says, it's the child of the Holy Spirit? Whereabouts does it say that? There, where it says there. This is in Matthew. Yes. When it says about the child... Oh, the child of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1. The, let's, the let's second person... It says in there, it says that the child of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's right, because Not in... Not the second person. Well, no, that's right. Because here, we've got the story of when God actually became a man. The point about Jesus is that God became a human being, you see. So in Matthew, when you've got the story of the birth of Jesus, as far as Matthew's concerned, he's picking up the story from the point when Jesus first came down to become a man, you see. So therefore, Jesus was born in the ordinary way, except that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That was the only difference. God was his father, not a human being. So here, Jesus was a child of the Holy Spirit because Jesus was literally born of the Spirit. At his birth, when we're born again, we're born of the Spirit. Well, Jesus was born of the Spirit right from the start of his human life because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit.
Okay, but the point is that what we've got in, in, in the second person of the Trinity changing his mode of existence really boils down to this, God becomes a man so that man can become, as it were, God. And I say as it were, because we're not talking literally, but everything God has, he wants to share with us. And that was why God shared in our manhood, so that we can share in everything that he has. So, quickie, yeah. Different subject. Right. Um, when the Adam and Eve were put over the garden, right. and the Lord said, um, well, he put them out, yes, they eat of the tree of life and live forever. Right. Now, how could that be since their spirits had died and death had entered in? Oh, right. It's it didn't happen, but the implication is that it was possible. Oh, no. The, the point about that is that there was quite clearly in the Garden of Eden, you see, before Adam and Eve sinned, they would never have died. Can you see? There was no, their tissue wasn't breaking up or anything like that. They would have just lived forever and ever and ever. No illness, no ageing or anything like that at all. Whereas once they sinned, death, decay, began to work in their body. Now there was quite obviously in the Garden of Eden a tree that if you ate its fruit this tree actually imparted to you the very life of God and this tree would have completely countered the biological effects of sin on their body it was a tree for healing and if you go to Revelation go to Revelation and right at the end chapter 22 now remember one or two things that we've said about paradise before the Garden of Eden was paradise alright when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, it was the Garden of Eden that was eventually transferred into the centre of the earth and became Abraham's bosom or paradise, as it was called. When Jesus ascended, he took that with him back into heaven. So paradise is now in heaven, alright? But, but by the time you get to revelation chapter 22 you've got the new heavens and the new earth so a new universe has been created and heaven god's home enters into the new universe and lands on the new planet earth and in 22 you've got john describing or trying to describe what he saw all right so really he's describing paradise all right now returned down onto earth and he then he showed and this is verse 1 revelation chapter 2 then he showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of god and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city also on one side of the river the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations so quite clearly the garden of eden had with had in it this tree which is a totally supernatural tree. This is a tree out of God's garden, all right? And it's a totally supernatural tree, as in everything that God makes, all right? And that if Adam and Eve had eaten the fruit of this tree, they would have still been sinners, but they would have had access to a power which would have um, meant that they would never have died. And, of course, that would be an utter tragedy. Can you imagine the kind of evil that would eventually be released if, you know, if men and women live for hundreds and hundreds or even thousands of years. So in that sense, death is a mercy. Can you see? Because everyone dies, the evil that a person can do is terminated eventually.
Do you see? So therefore, Adam and Eve, the reason that they were barred from the Garden of Eden was because if they'd have got hold of this tree, well, it would have been disastrous. They wouldn't have died. Yeah, and they'd have they, still been sinners, but they would never have died. Would you say that they were converted, they became converted sinners? That's right, they did. But there was no guarantee. You see, their children didn't all get converted. Cain didn't. And all the hundreds of kids they had, the majority of them didn't get converted. Well, it would have quite simply meant that if their children, as time went by, could have got into the Garden of Eden, they'd have never died. Can you see? And you'd have had a race of immortals who were sinners. And so the reason that God made sure they didn't get to the fruit of the tree was so that, you know, they wouldn't survive, that eventually they'd all die. And anyway, that the Garden of Eden was then transferred down into the centre of the earth and became what we know as paradise. So the point is it was never, once Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't plan to leave paradise on the earth at all. He took it off of the earth and he put it at the centre of the earth. Now it's in heaven, but of course when heaven lands on the new earth, paradise will be restored. So what you've got is Adam and Eve had paradise, quite literally. They sinned, paradise lost. But as a result of what Jesus has done, paradise will literally, literally be regained on earth, you see. Um, so that was the thing about them being chucked out of the Garden of Eden. Um, just go back though to Philippians because there is something really, really amazing here and I'll show it to you because it is, it is superb. And uh, you can kind of get the full picture of what Paul was actually saying um, to, the, um, to the Christians. Um, but here in the Philippians chapter 2 and this has been called the low level approach alright now you'll see what I mean in a few moments and um, first of all a little bit of background to help you understand I'll give you a picture I used to know a guy who was um, he was in the RAF and he was one of their chief test pilots alright for testing their new aircraft so you know I mean he was a squadron leader and he was one of their top pilots a guy called Dick. Now, he also held the world record for the fastest ascent in a jet. And I mean sort of people who fly jets, they do things like that. And whoever can fly upwards the fastest, they get the world record, you see. And Dick held, I don't know if it's been beaten, but he held the world record for the ascent, the fastest ascent in a jet. Now, the key to it, and the reason that he held it, all right, the world record, was because he was a thoroughgoing nutter. Because in order, you see, what you have to do, the, the point is, who can make a jet fly upwards fastest? Now, it's no use just taking off and flying upwards. That's no good. It's not fast enough. The key to it is this. In order to get a jet to fly upwards really, really, really fast, you have to take it to ridiculous altitudes. I mean, you're talking about a couple of miles probably or something like that. And then you literally just let it drop. And they are just coming down vertical. Now, the point is that as they come down and approach the ground, as they then, as it were, I don't know how to fly a plane, but, you know, they do the old wings, so it's swooping down, and then it, it sort of levels out and swoops up. Can you see that, that therefore, it's, as it goes up, it's got all the power of 
the rockets or the engines, but it's got the momentum of the downward thrust. Can you see? So, therefore, the further it's been able to fall in a vertical way, the faster it will go upwards. All right. So, therefore, the bloke who gets the world record is the one who leaves it longest before he brings it out of the dive and gets it to go up again. And that was Dick. And the reason was because he was a Christian. <laughs> and uh, he was a bit of a Calvinist. Uh, I disagree with him here, but he thought that God set a time for him to die and that's it. You see, therefore, you know, he did things like that that are absolutely crazy because he didn't believe he could die until God's time, you see. So, therefore, you know, he might be right. But that was his reason. But, you see, the point was that, therefore, can you see that you've got here a swooping, that the jet is very, very high, it swoops down very, very low and then swoops back up again and the lower it comes in the swoop the higher it ends up going now that's what you call the low level approach all right down and up now what I want to show you is that that is exactly what Paul is describing here because what we're going to see here is literally imagine Dick in his F-14 or whatever it was that he piloted all right what we're going to do in these verses here is that we're going to see Jesus coming from as high as you possibly can swooping as low as you possibly can and then swooping back up again as high as you can get let's go through it Again, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which you have in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Now, what we're going to see here is Jesus coming down, 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 down. All right? Lower and lower and lower. And the first thing we see is that he took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So we have Jesus, who was himself God, becoming a human being. Now that's a drop, isn't it? I mean, that's got to be 50,000 feet, hasn't it? Can you see? When Jesus humbled himself and he became a man. So we now see Jesus beginning the swoop. Down he's coming. But look at what happens. And being found in human form, that's low enough, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death so now he's gone lower, he's gone into death, even the death on a cross. Because that was a criminal's death. Now can you see what's happening? Picture it, you've got heaven up there, boom. Now Jesus has swooped down and he's come into the world of humanity. Jesus is now a man, he's sharing the experience of men and women who are sinners. Now, because men and women are sinners, their ultimate end is that they're going to be lost, eternally separated from God, downwards, if you like. But God wanted men and women up there in heaven with him. So Jesus begins to swoop, and down, down, down he comes, and he becomes a man. Then he humbles himself, even to death. Now Jesus swoops down below the land of the living, if you like. Now, what you've got here is that, therefore, God has highly exalted him. So, because of this downward swoop, Jesus has been exalted back up into heaven, to the same place where he was before. But what you've got to see is this. You've got Jesus in heaven. You've got, if you like, the next level. You've got human experience. But human experience is that of sin, being under the judgment of God, sold to death.
So therefore, even below human experience, you've got physical death and separation from God. Now the picture is, down swoops Jesus from heaven. He swoops down, I mean this is a vertical drop, alright, into the experience of men and women. He becomes a man. He dies on the cross. He goes into death. And because he then goes into death, and this downward spiral is literal, because when Jesus died on the cross, all the believers who had died were at the centre of the earth. Alright? He swoops down lower, that he dies, he goes literally into the centre of the earth. And as a result of that, he's then exalted and given name above every name. So he swooped down as low as you can get, and then he swooped straight up again. But what was it, as Jesus was right at the bottom of this swoop, what was it he did? He grabbed all the believers up and took them back to heaven with him. Can you see the picture of Jesus literally swooping down from heaven, as it were, into the centre of the earth to get all the believers who had died, all right, and then grabbing them up with himself as he belts back up into heaven? You know, it's like, um, you know, birds of prey swooping down, you know, sort of maybe an owl sees a little mouse, and the owl swoops down on the mouth, mouse and flies up again, and it's grabbed the mouth, mouse, <laughs> mouth, it's grabbed the mouse in its swoop. Well, that's what Jesus has done. He came down into human experience. He died. He dealt with sin. And for all those who believed on him, he literally swooped us up and he's taken us back into heaven. Can you see the low-level approach? So Jesus came down, 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 down. He got as low as you could get. And because he got so low, he was exalted so highly. But of course, because he came so low, for all believers, he hooked us up. And that is why even us, even though we haven't died yet, the Bible says that even now we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Because even though we're not dead yet, and in heaven literally the point is because we're one with jesus and because jesus is in heaven now we are spiritually in heaven with him so what we see is for jesus the way of glory was that the way up was down because jesus was so humbled he was so exalted now in the christian life this is exactly the same for us progress is the lower you go not the higher you get it's the lower you go that's why the christian life is down can you see it's always down before it's up. It always gets worse before it gets better. There's always destruction, being humbled. Well, the Bible says God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And in the Bible it talks about that if you're exalting yourself, you'll be humbled. But if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. And can you see all the time it's this swoop, Jesus came down from heaven to earth in order to catch us up with him. There's another time it's going to happen as well. Because when an eagle swoops down, alright, he catches up his prey, doesn't he? What's going to happen at the rapture? Where does the word rapture come from? Remember, it comes from the Latin word rapio, which means to be caught up. And there's going to be another low-level approach. Only this time, what's going to happen at the rapture is that Jesus will come from heaven. He won't land on earth. He'll just come into the atmosphere, but he's got very big arms. And as he hits the atmosphere, he'll swoop up all the believers and take them back to heaven. Can you see, all the time, this is what's happening. It's Jesus swooping like an eagle from heaven, coming down to our level and swooping back up with us. And anyone who's willing to get caught by him can go back to heaven with him. That's precisely what the Christian life is. And sort of there, 
in the same way that he shared our experience of sin and death. Because remember, although Jesus never actually sinned, on the cross he became sin. He actually became sin. So God shared everything about us. He shared our humanity and he shared our sinfulness. Not that he ever sinned, he didn't. But on the cross he became sin and he died. God shared humanity, he shared sinfulness, he shared death. But as a result of that, for those who believe, they can experience in return eternal life and what it is to have a glorified body and to be actually reigning with Jesus throughout eternity. Let me just come back to what you were saying about uh, sharing his glory. If you, um, if you go to John, <clears throat> the letter of John, The letter of John, John's first letter, the epistle One of John. John. One John, that's correct. One John. Right, 1 John verse 28. <clears throat> uh, no, oh no, verse 26. No, not, hang on, I've lost it, hang on a sec. Is it chapter 2? Um... I've just lost it. It is in 1 John. Just give us a sec and I will find it. Um, where's it gone? Yeah, sorry, chapter 3 and verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Alright. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15. And of course when Paul talks about <clears throat> the glorified body... And in verse 42, when he, he kind of, he, he's trying to describe, obviously he's trying to describe the indescribable, but nevertheless he has a good bash. And in verse 42, he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Because what Paul has been saying is that there are different kinds of bodies, alright? He says that there are reptile bodies, um, he says there are bird bodies, and he says there are fish bodies. The point is that each creature was created by God with a body adapted for its environment, alright? Uh, you know, he says that the planets have a different type of body again, because, I mean, they're designed to be in outer space. But the point is, our glorified bodies are designed for heaven. Can you see? Because remember, heaven eventually lands on earth in a glorified state. So then, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. Now here, he's saying that the, that the sowing is that when you die, you lose your mortal body and it becomes a little seed like and it grows into something else eventually, alright? So, what is sown is perishable. That's your body now. What is raised is imperishable. Now, what does perish mean? Well, it means it, it goes from bad to worse. It decays. There's death in it. 
there's a downward trend. In the glorified body like Jesus, there is absolutely no downward trend in it whatsoever. Cells do not die. Can you see? There is an absolutely perfect body. It is biologically perfect and completely self-sustaining, just as Jesus' was. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. In glory. Well, I mean, throughout the Bible says that the, that the glory is God's. Can you see? It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a physical body, i.e. the limitations of life here, but it is raised a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And verse 47, the first man was from earth, a man of dust, the second man is from heaven. Now then, go down into verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, what does that mean? We've borne the image of the man of dust. Who was the man of dust? It was Adam. Wasn't he? He was created from the dust of the ground. And we share his image. We're just like Adam. We are human beings after the likeness of Adam in every respect. So just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now can you see? Now, so what I'm what you need to understand is this. If you could Let's, let's now, this is hypothetical, so don't read anything into this at all, it is hypothetical. Just supposing, alright, um, say when, say I got transported into time, in, into the future, alright? Say that God decided to transport me now to the rapture. I will get a glorified body, so I'd be glorified like Jesus, alright? If I was to then be transported back in time to come into this meeting now which is before the rapture because remember only Jesus has got a glorified body no one else has yet so if I with a glorified body got transported back in time alright to this meeting if you saw me in a glorified body the only thing that would prevent you bowing down and worshipping me is that you'd recognise it was me and that therefore it couldn't be Jesus can you see what I mean? But if you saw a man in a glorified body who you didn't recognise, you would kneel down and worship because you think it was Jesus. Can you see what I mean? But of course, nothing like that can ever happen because we all get glorified bodies at the same time. Can you see? There are no mortals at the moment with glorified bodies. Only Jesus has got it. But can you see, if you were to meet a mortal in a glorified body, you would think it was Jesus. Unless it was a female, alright, unless it was a woman, or unless it was a man that you knew. Can you see? So can you see the point is that there'll be no mistake about who's Jesus and who isn't, because we'll all get our glorified bodies at the same time. And I mean, probably, however glorious we will be, I'm sure that Jesus will have just that touch more. I mean, there's, there's no question about that. Because the point is that Jesus' glory is inherently his the glory we will have is shared. That's the difference. So can you... It says, it says in my one, it's Gen 49, and just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven. 
Mm. Now, I've taken that to make the still do image that mm. Jesus. Ne Obviously, we need a body that isn't going to run down when we die. Jesus mm. has got one, so we get one because He gives us one. But I don't take it that. You see, what you just said about if you were transported in time and then come back with your glorified body doesn't strike me right, what you just said, that we would mistake you or John or whoever for Jesus, or if a stranger did it. I don't see that... Well, it could never happen, obviously. That's well, why I stress it. Yeah, it could I never happen. It is hypothetical. It's a silly example, but... I can't see that that's possible because you're going to have mini Jesus. No, no. We no. need a body, oh, no. but... Um, oh, no, you're not going to have mini-Jesuses. We don't need it. We don't need his attributes. Otherwise, there's no uniqueness in God. If we're yeah, all but when omniscient I, and omnipresent, we're boring. No, when I'm talking about sharing his attributes, obviously there are some that, by definition, we cannot share. No one could share the fact that God is eternal. None of us can share that. Of course we can't. No, not necessarily. But what I'm what I'm trying to get across is that that we will share Jesus's glory. Um, if you go to Romans eight, um, Romans eight and verse sixteen, um, and Paul says it's the Spirit Himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And the glory that we will be glorified with at the rapture is the same glory that Jesus was glorified with when he was exalted and given a name high above every name. But the difference is that Jesus' glory is inherently his. It was his to begin with. Can you see? He didn't get it from anywhere, it is his glory. Whereas we will share the glory of Jesus, but it's not inherently ours, it's because God has shared it with us. So I'm not trying to say that in that sense, of course you can't share God's eternality. Um, but the point is that when it comes to God being omniscient, when we're glorified, we will not each one of us be omniscient, but we will be totally one with Jesus who is. We will have access to Jesus' knowledge without limit. I don't know how else to... too far with those details, because it isn't... It's not here. It, when it says that we will... Um, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And on all that, chapter 8 goes on about that. Surely that's the glory is that God has achieved something in winning us back. Oh, and no. We receive our glorified body. And it's the crux of creation, isn't it? I mean, that's the glory that we will share. The fact that Jesus came down and died for us. We've received that, so we get a glorified body. We're up there with God, worshipping Him and doing whatever we're going to be doing. But that's the glory, isn't it? Because the others down there haven't got it. But not this... I mean, if we know everything 
Jesus knows. I mean, that's ridiculous. You wouldn't need to ask him any questions, would you, for a start? You've always said about, or someone had that dream, or when yeah, when they were, they wanted to ask a question to Jesus. That's and they right. Ask the question. Yeah. Because Jesus is everywhere when we're all up there. That's He'll right. Be everywhere with each of us. Even though he's only one person. Right. But, and the question was answered in their mind. That's right. Now I can accept that, but what you're that is precisely what I'm saying. I might have expressed myself yeah, badly, no, but that is precisely what I'm saying. What you said is that all that Jesus knows everything because he's yeah. God and so did the other two. Right. Well, we won't know everything. Like, they know everything. Otherwise, you've got demigods up there. We're all little gods. Oh, yeah. No, I've been very careful to say that that isn't what I mean. No, so even if I'm expressing myself... Well, no, because I keep emphasising that's not that's not what I mean. I that would be a heresy. <laughs> Pardon? I heard you say that. What's that? Sorry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. You know what Thomas is about course and not, I don't. I think we want to. <laughs> 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 yeah. No. What we've got to try and understand here is that what I'm. <laughs> yeah. No. The what. The picture we've got here, in the broadest possible terms, is that God shared our humanity so that humanity can share in his godhood. No, this is the point. Eternal life, not godhood. No, I don't know well, that word. Yeah. We share eternity with him. Yeah, you might, the won't. Yeah, you might not like that word, but you have already shared Jesus' godhood. You have already done it. That, yeah, that's right. So therefore, when we're in our glorified bodies, we will have, to the ultimate extent that we can, have shared in his godhood. Not become God. There's no possible way of doing that. But it's like, for instance, say you had a father who built up a big business, all right? When his son comes of age, then the father makes him the managing director. Can you see the father is sharing with the son everything that the father has. That is precisely the picture that we have an inheritance in Jesus. Now obviously, that's right, but obviously it doesn't mean that the son who inherits the business from his father can inherit the fact that he built up the business. No, of course he can't. That's logically impossible. But the point is that that which Jesus has is made available to us. That is the inheritance. Our, in our inheritance is Jesus himself. Can you see? So it's not that we become Jesus or even that we're little Jesuses. But the point is that we will be ourselves, but totally free of sin, and totally sharing the glory of Jesus. Not because the glory is in any way ours, but because Jesus has shared it with us. So I'm not saying we become God, I'm not anything like that at all, we don't. But we will share, can you see to that extent, we will share in everything that God is and everything God has. Hence, it says that we will bear the image of the man from heaven. John says we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, in precisely the same way that when we saw earlier, that when the Bible says that we as ordinary human beings were created in the image of God, we saw that that wasn't just spiritual or moral, it's literal. Because the second person of the Trinity had a physical body that was human-like. It's where ours came from. So when the Bible says that we will share the likeness of the glory of God, 
That is precisely what it means. It's quite literal. But of course it doesn't mean that we become God. Of course it doesn't. That would be a heresy.